Sunset Lake CBD is a majority employee-owned hemp farm located right outside of Burlington, Vermont. Before they started growing hemp, Sunset Lake Farms produced cream for Ben & Jerry's. Sunset Lake CBD doesn't use any pesticides or herbicides to grow any of its hemp plants, and they use organic fertilizer and other sustainable farming techniques to ensure the long-term health of the soil and to minimize their carbon footprint. So like all of us, my days are really stressful. By the end of the night, my kids are in bed, I'm taking a minute to chill, but I'm still unwinding. I recently started using the Relax Gummies infused with CBD isolate, reishi mushroom extract, and ashwagandha root extract. I'm really glad I tried these because they really helped me get ready for a good night of sleep, and I really think I sleep better, so I'd highly recommend it. Check out Sunset Lake CBD today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code UNDERMINE for 20% off your order. That's sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code UNDERMINE for 20% off your order. Farmer-owned, Vermont-grown, Sunset Lake CBD. Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Osiris. On the back of the worm. Hopefully, we'll find out what that means in this episode. I think we've said it a few times. Hello, and welcome to season four of the Undermine Podcast by Osiris Media. I'm Tom Marshall, your host of these proceedings. We're near the middle of our season at episode 23, a season where we're exploring fish in the 90s. We're visiting some ep- epic shows of the early 90s and then drawing ever closer to our goal, the famous Fall 97 tour. And we're kind of at the edge of that right now. Today, our shows are the 1st and 2nd of July 97 in Amsterdam, of all places, at the famous Paradiso. And to help me explore this European detour right before the fall of 97, I'm here with the gruff but lovable CEO of Osiris, my co-host, RJB. Hey, Tom. Um, This is the actual, real genuine halfway point of the season uh we have 46 episodes and this is number 23 so based on my math we're we're right in the middle we made it 46 episodes till the coal runs out or something like that they said yeah something something like that um today we're diving into our second amsterdam visit of the series both from 97 of course you heard 217 um now we're at july 1st and july 2nd wild wacky shows that that sometimes make me feel like I'm watching or listening to band practice. Um, I'm looking forward to getting into these shows. We have a great guest, someone who everyone's familiar with, and I I think we'll shed some light on a lot of this stuff. So before we get into it, um, if you enjoy what we're doing, please consider supporting our new Osiris premium offering. You can join for a few bucks a month. You'll get bonus episodes, ad-free episodes. You can access the full Under the Scales catalog, discounts on stuff, meet and greets, and more. OsirisPod.com slash premium or click on the link in the show notes. And thanks for your support. Um, Thomas, who do we have today? Today, our guest 
on Undermine, I'm pleased to announce, is the infamous Scott Marks. Scott Marks is my bro. He is everybody's bro. He's Biz Archive on Twitter, always tweeting a ton of relevant fish facts. And he also often live tweets the set list during shows. He's a board member of the fan-run volunteer organization Mockingbird, which has done so much for us fans, but also for music education, having recently surpassed $2 million in gifts to schools and students. Um, and Scott seems to tour endlessly, and he's never shy about the love he has for his favorite band. Let's bring him in from the waiting chamber where uh, he's been holding his breath. I hope he's okay. Scott, are you, did you survive your time in the waiting room? There he is. Barely I'm here. You look safe. You made it. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk about these shows. <laughs> you are more than welcome. Thank you for coming. And uh, RJ, would you agree that our guest today is Scott Marks? <laughs> I don't know. That's what I've heard um, a bunch of times. I'm not sure, uh, but I think so. Okay, that's not up for debate then. Okay, there's lots of debates with fish and set lists and stuff, and Scott is often right at the root of it. But hello and welcome, sir, Scott. Um, for our listeners, when did you start going to fish shows? Uh, fall 1997. So a couple of months after the Paradiso, and um, I, I got the bug immediately and have been going ever since. So for the record, you were not at these shows that we're talking about tonight. I was not but you are a student of them. Yeah. The, um, the second night of this run is one of my favorite shows uh, of any era of fish. So I'm very excited to take a dive into this. Let's do it. It's going to be, it's going to be wild. Um, and well, I guess, first of all, Scott, we, we talked about some of the themes. We're going to talk about the music obviously in depth, but um, the sound of these, soundboards particularly you know on the live uh official releases it's so intimate and so like powerful it feels like you're you're there and um scott i know you were talking about you're or thinking about sort of like the size of the venues and this feels like after the hugeness of 95 96 they're kind of getting back into these smaller venues um and, and i think that's reflected in the playing but i feel like the sound itself is just it's it feels so intimate the 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 shows that came out of the Amsterdam 97 box set at the Paradiso, the, the sound is pristine. Um, and really at any of these venues you're looking at during the, the winter, spring, and the, uh, the summer tours, um, the Paradiso is what, 1500 capacity and you're looking at other venues that were between 1000 and 2000. And even something like the Royal Albert Hall, which is over 5,000, you go listen to the Dylan show from 66, um, the quality of that's fantastic as well. Um, so I think with technology being what it is and with remastering recordings and um, these are just like, you wouldn't even know you were listening to like a, a live show until you actually hear the audience. Um, there's, there's no crowd at all. Like when the, the show is going on, it's just, it's, it's really special. And I think they, they did a fantastic job putting this together. What do you what do you think it was like for fans to be there? I, I actually don't know anyone who was at these shows personally. I don't think. Um, do you have you talked to people who who were at these shows, Scott or, or Tom? Um, just Brad Sands, really. Um, I I came. I showed up later. I showed up later. I wasn't here in the winter. So I don't know anyone who was here for '97. 
uh, Adam Scheinberg, president of the Mockingbird Foundation, was there for a bunch of the 98 summer shows um, before they went back to the States. And again, um, those were similar sized venues. So for me, it, and I, I wasn't there, but it would be a dream experience to see fish in, in intimate venues like that. Like the closest I got was at the Met a couple of years ago, um, which was what, 3,500? Um, so not yeah. super intimate, but compared to seeing shows at MSG or, or the Gorge or Alpine, it was, it was something that, you know, I, I really rarely got a chance to see the band in, in venues of that size. I did the Fox theater in 2009 and in radio city in, in 2000. But again, these are still two, three times the size of something like the Paradiso. Yeah. So crazy. Um, and Tom, I, I think we're going to get into some of your, your Europe adventures um, a little bit later. Cause I know you weren't at these shows, but um, I want to ask you, Tom, before we get into the music, there were some songs that were being debuted on this tour that had, you know, lasting power and, and also like bring this kind of darkness to the, the music um, saw it again, ghost are the ones that come to mind, but we, we got to talk to Trey about the, the story of the ghost um, several years ago, but what what was going on with you when you were writing these songs? Saw it again, Ghost. Were you uh, because because Fish took it to a dark place musically in in a good way? But um, well, where was your head at? I see. I kind of see what you're saying about like you know, saw it again and Ghost. Like you know, a horrible beast outside the window that wants to come in, and then a ghost you know, waiting in the wind and rain on the doorstep. It sounds similar, but in fact, it's kind of light years apart. Saw it again was simply like a nightmare, a horrifying apparition at the window, like in a horror movie where finally the lightning flash shows that you aren't imagining it, but there actually is something fixated upon you outside that wants to come in and, and harm you. Um, whereas Ghost is actually about a friendly spirit who is helping me navigate adolescence, um, whom... I was certain had taken up residence in my friend Phil Dumanadier in eighth grade. And of course, Phil is horrified about that now. Um, but he he denied it, but also he didn't. He he would say things that only the spirit would know. Um, and I convinced myself that that he was kind of hiding it from me. But anyway, as a result, it made a huge impression on me um, that I decided to describe to my best friend Trey the way he likes best in a song. And that's I feel I've never told you the story of the ghost. And anyway, I think we do a deep dive into ghost on one of the older under the scale. So we don't have to go too deep into that, but that's kind of, those two songs are definitely same era, but different sides of the coin. It that's might, fair. It, it might be time that RJ, it might be a little early in the show, but if we dive into the music after this, it might be a good time to have a break and talk to our sponsors. What do you think? That'd be good. And then we have plenty of time to talk about the music. All right, let's do it. Okay, it's time to take a break. When we return, we will dive deep into this show. Hey, listeners, I want to tell you about one of our great partners, DistroKid. DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keeping 100% of their royalties and earnings. If you're a musician and looking to get your music out there, DistroKid is the way to go. DistroKid is available for iOS and Android and is now available in Apple's App Store and the Google Play Store. More than a million artists rely on DistroKid to get their music onto Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all other major streaming services. 
And with DistroKid, you can upload new releases, see your financial progress, get notified when you've earned royalties, withdraw money from the app, view and share links, check your streaming stats, and a whole lot more. DistroKid has more features than any other music distributor. Check them out today. Go to distrokid.com, that's distrokid with a capital K, dot com slash VIP slash undermine for a special offer only for our listeners. That's distrokid, capital K, dot com slash VIP slash undermine. Thanks, DistroKid. Hey, this is Chris Swinney, formerly of the Ataris and currently host of That One Time on Tour, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Have you ever wondered what it's really like on the road? The highs can be euphoric, but the lows can be crushing. Join me every week as I chat with industry pros about what it's like living out their wildest dream and in some cases, their worst nightmare. Past guests of the show include members of NoFX, Pennywise, Bad Religion, and more. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com. All right, we are back with Scott Marks. Scott, um, I don't know how we how we should get into these two two days of music because there's a lot to talk about. But I guess one of the things is that we immediately get on the back of the worm uh, at the very outset here with the ghost opener in the first night. Um, I, I know this is another example of kind of taking fans on a journey. But um, what do you feel about that that ghost and how it kind of sets the set the, the stage for those two days? So ghosts have been around for just over two weeks at this point. And each time it was being played, it was getting longer and longer. And you, you hit over 20 minutes to open the show. Um, and so already it was becoming a, a jam vehicle, if you will. Um, and it, there was funky grooves that were, were all over the, the improvisation. It was just kind of the, the style that I should gone into at that point, which began, I think, in that those June shows uh, on Europe and you, you can hear it on four five ninety eight, where Trey's talking about this funk group that got into and they can't get out of it. So the, the band acknowledged it and it's, it's easy to hear. Um, and you, you had the, the back of the worm banter going on with Trey and fish, which um, showed up for ghost and for a bunch of songs that night and the worm town jam the next night. And then even a couple of nights later out in, uh, in Italy, uh, for a couple of songs showed up. So it definitely the band played around with the idea for a bit and just kept popping songs, um, popping the, the back of the worm stuff into um, various, various things. I feel like that that set is really I mean that ghost is really kind of um it's a, definitely an interesting like you said 20 minute adventure um 
And then there's a really cool Yamar. I mean, everything is so loose, you know, um, it just feels like a very loose show. Um, the limb by limb and then into like the ain't love funny saw it again, sort of like gets a little dark, but like, again, not in a horrible, not in a like scary way. It's just sort of like, I don't even know how I would describe the sound. Do you have a description for it? It's out there. I wouldn't call it dark. Um, maybe a little bit of ambience and just space. And they, they had a chance to play around with things there. You, you can definitely hear in these two shows, them, them going off. You know, it's type two, if you will, where it's out of the song structure, but it's, it's not necessarily a, a raging jam, but it's, it's out there and they're kind of exploring and then they eventually find where they want to go. Um, you have the cities that that goes out there and even a little bit after the limb by limb in the first set um it doesn't end properly and so they they definitely were exploring in a lot of different areas for these shows i mean that set two opens with you know fishman on the playing the piano and then like and then the timber which is a very good version and uh, like you said the the gin into huge cities there, these two days, there's a lot of just jam labels, you know, which is, which is fun. Um, I remember getting these tapes and just being like, what the hell happened? Um, it, Tom, can I ask you, you've, you've done some Europe bef- just to like get the context. What, what was it like seeing fish in Europe in the, you know, 96, 97, 98? Um, and, and why do you think these shows sound so different to us? I mean, were they, were they different to you being a fan kind of with them on the road? Oh, definitely. I mean, fish already here in the U S had already kind of grown to a, a certain size and you guys have both touched on it. Like you're getting a chance to see fish again in these small venues. And it's, it was outrageous. And the, you know, uh, people, uh, I, I miss this part of the summer, this part of the, of the tour, but I, I showed up um, uh, for uh, the kickoff in Dublin I was there, uh, Dublin, London, Austria, and Prague. And I'd been to Europe a bit with fish before and some other travel, but this time uh, was like outrageous. Um, the band was so good and those small theaters and all the Americans who went from show to show uh, all became pals. And we would party late into the night after the shows. We never left the USA time zone. I never acclimated to European time because we just stayed up all night. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, the night in um, Vienna, uh, June nineteenth, uh, ninety seven, was the famous meat stick night, uh, where Trey uttered those uh, words about the last sad looking piece of sausage in the hotel mini fridge. He said, "It's time for the meat stick." <laughs> um, and then Sophie and Trey, of course, turned it into a dance like the the Macarena. Um, and oh man, it was a hilarious, wonderful time traveling around with European fish. It was like unsupervised not under the spotlight, like the parents weren't watching, you know, we were on our own thrashing around the continent from uh, show to show. And I'll never forget it. Scott, what, what do you, I mean, what, what's your recommendation for this, this first show? Like if you were going to go to one thing, cause there's so much going on and there's so, there's so many great pieces of improv. Is there a segment or, or a particular song that you would point people to? Uh, I'm a little biased on this, but I, I'd go right to the ghost. Um, just the, the raging opener to the show, um, and the banter, um, I, I, something that it's near and dear to my heart. And I just I'm really tied to that. 
It's so ridiculous. I mean, the, the gin is great, but the ghosts, I mean, what a way to, to kick off these shows. And um, I think, you know, we, we can talk more about this as we talk about July 2nd, but this is kind of the, the peak of, of the year up to this point, right? These two days. And I mean, I think the, it's, it's hard to choose between the two, but there, there's a lot going on here. Um, I listened to both these shows twice. Cause I was like, I, I still couldn't really absorb all of the different well, shenanigans, but jams also, there's just, there's so much happening. Um, I will say, I think, you know, you can search for this on the internet, but it, the back of the worm story, according to the internet, I think that traded an interview at some point and said there was a, there was a, a wild night in Amsterdam that, that, that sort of spurred that, uh, back of the worm, um, phrase. And then it just, you know, kind of made its way into the music. And one thing he said in this interview, and I don't know where the interview is from, so it might not be real, but I think it is. Um, he said like the, when they're playing in Amsterdam in the middle of a jam, one of the jams that get out of control and you feel like you're not really playing, it's playing for you. Um, that's when like the back of the worm thing came out, which is just, I don't know. It's just wild that, um, this, this was memorialized and then like we have such good sound quality and such a memorable, memorable show. It's amazing. Oh, and you have Trey giving the story the second night about how you know, you had a wild night uh, in, in the canals and ended up riding on the back of the worm all night. And so, you know, I'd, I'd love to go check it out and hear like if there's an actual real story behind it. Um, but it just, it's entertaining and it's creative and just, just fun. Yeah, it really is. Um, so the second night, Scott, I think I think you had said in your notes or in our back and forth that you, you feel like the second night is sort of is like the pinnacle of this of this year to up to this point. So again, this is where your where someone's bias can can kick in, but um, for possibly my favorite fish jam of all time, um, it's that stash uh, in the second set. Um, wow. The the beautiful melodic portion that goes on for several minutes um, just hits in all, all the right spots. I guess it depends on mood. Sometimes I'll, I'll go for a tweezer or a mic song, but just that, that improvisation that they came up with um, was, was perfect. Um, and song selection for that night, you got a lot of great shows that open with a mic song. Um, and so again, right off the bat, you're, you're plunging right into an, an amazing set uh, to open up the night. And it's so good. That stash is just so good. I mean, they they do come out of the gate with the, as you said, the Mike song and the first set first set opener into into simple, into maze. Uh, one of the things I like about this these shows, I was talking about like the intimacy of the sound. But um, on the official releases, you can hear Trey like before vultures. He's like, you know, let's do vultures. 
Let's do vultures, <laughs> you know, and like the night, the night before you can just hear him kind of calling the songs and uh, it's, it's really fun to fun to hear. Um, that first set is, it just, it's pretty well balanced, you know, like water in the sky into week of bog to close. It was like a pretty, I mean, you know, totally different songs, but it really works. And then the second set, I mean, I guess if you count the Wormtown thing as a song, it's four songs, but it's really like just three songs, which is pretty outrageous. I mean, that, that set Scott is, uh, I mean, you can't really, can't really complain about it at all. You know, you'll have people that will sometimes complain about the place of awaiting in a velvet sea. Um, right the and, yeah. and the, it, it was just, it was perfect placement in this, um, out of the jam and it's, it's, it's delicate, um, going into it and just, it, it felt like it was stripped down and, and perhaps it's just with, with the venue, but, um, it, you know, it's just, it, it works. Um, and so the song placement, the song selection was just, you know, right up my alley for, for the show. I'll never complain about the placement of Velvet Sea. I mean, the, the, the ultimate version of this, uh, which maybe they practiced here was, um, I would say big Cypress where, you know, the sun was coming up and they played velvet sea and that was a whole different thing. But to me, this, uh, when I heard it, cause I, I didn't, I just listened in the car. I wasn't, uh, looking at a set list and I was like, what is this? Like that stash is outrageous. And then the llama and then whatever the worm town craziness velvet sea, it was, it was like a breath of needed fresh air for me. I loved it. I mean, yeah, you gotta, great. you gotta do that. You gotta take a breather every, every once in a while. Right. Even yep. if you're, even if you're jamming in Amsterdam for two days, um, <laughs> that Scott, that stash, you mentioned the, the melodic kind of beautiful space. It's really pretty amazing. And, um, I, I guess we're, was stash, do you feel like this was the beginning of some of these more classic songs that started to take on different forms or, or didn't, or not adhering to typical forms, like, you know, 96, 95, you didn't really see stash or Bowie, I guess like a couple of versions of Bowie, but this is when like these songs kind of just become any song can become a jam vehicle. It feels like. Yeah. I, I think I, I'd have to sit down and pinpoint where it all began, but you know, it was definitely going on at this point and you would see it. Um, in the fall with, with other songs, uh, popping out, I, I think like there was a, there's a timber, uh, that got released is like, a from the archives, um, which also kind of got out there, I think similar into like the, the melodic, um, type two or type 10 or whatever you want to call it jam at that point. So you're so, so off the reservation, you've gone off of whatever jam you were going into. Um, I think it's much more common now where you're going to have songs that are, completely leaving their structure and um the you know, the the axla part two in vegas last year um where they just like we're gonna jam this out and we're gonna do it um but you, know, you go back to really august 93 i think was when songs started to really explore themselves and you, you have 94 with with the bowies uh that were going 25 30 minutes um and so this is just another chapter of the the improvisation at this point. Yeah, that's 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 a good point. Yeah, I guess that had been slowly happening. Um, the these shows are great. I mean, Tom, given that you're you're less of a jam 
centric person than than probably Scott or I are. Um, what what was your impression going back to these, or what did anything sound wise that that jumped out to you? Like as we start to move toward toward the fall. Yeah, I mean, like you know, I was going to say waiting was sort of a welcome thing uh, in the first set. The strange design to me was sort of a welcome uh, little breather, and I like. I like strange design. I always liked it. And this was a, this was just, you know, a nice version. It's nothing that the jam uh, crazy people are going to write home about. But um, uh, to me, it was a, a welcome break. It's all right. This happened once definitely a song guy and it was kind of nice also to see vultures begin to really take off uh for that's not a pun or or anything um <laughs> and then water in the sky is uh really a song that i can't tell if they've kind of left behind a little bit but it was a fixture and um i always loved it so this show uh, i agree of the two nights this is this is my favorite of the two and uh, yeah, that second set is outrageous, but I really love the first set and the song choice. Well, yeah, I, I think the strange design definitely works in that first set. Um, yeah. And, you know, part of it's definitely songs that you prefer to hear to show, but I think just again, the placement was, was perfect. Yep. And he was just calling it. You could tell, like RJ said, there was no structure. They were just, like I said, spotlight off, camera off. They're with, uh, they're in front of a small group of people, and they're just kind of like it's band practice for the United States, right? They're going to go back and do a tour. Let's uh, let's get the craziness out here and try anything and everything. Oh, and you had um, you had thirteen songs that debuted in those first two nights um, of the tour, and so you have other shows that had a lot of debuts but these just stuck and then you had three things like the ghost the twist and the piper all made their debuts and they've been monsters ever since Scott, what what do you think about it? ain't love funny i thought i think is a really good cover um and maybe it's venue size i saw it uh, i guess a month after this at alpine the last time they played it um in in the summer of 97 but I think it's a pretty cool song, but maybe it's a song that just doesn't translate to a to a big amphitheater. Um, do you think they or maybe they were just playing with it that summer and then, you know, decided to kind of drop it like like a lot of songs? I don't know. Any thoughts on that? I don't know. Um, Mike played played it in his uh, his own band years later, um, so perhaps mm -hmm. it was something that he wanted to play, and then the band collectively decided to can it after a couple shows, but. Um, you know, it's nice hearing that uh, in this show and, and again, a couple of times during the tour. Yeah, it's cool. It's like a nice, it's a very nice, quiet um, cover. Um, so, Scott, as we go forward, we have one more stop after this before we get to Fall 97, which is what we've been kind of, you know, working our way up to. Um, 
what do you see as the kind of legacy of these shows or, or where do you see fish as you know at this point bef- as they're kind of heading into heading into the you know summer summer in the US and then fall 97 I think the the legacy of these shows was the introduction introduction of the, the funk um that style definitely shifted the band uh forever so I I feel that's and and again the the amount of songs that debuted and, and I, I think Trey had written like a couple of dozen songs um in the weeks before these shows and then you just had them all showing up um it's something that you you don't necessarily necessarily see anymore where you know the last couple of tours they haven't had a an opening show where they've debuted several songs like this so it almost seems like it's been a thing in the past where you'll you'll have songs that'll debut but it'll be like a song or two here or a song or two there as opposed to nights where you'd have five six seven eight songs debuting all at once and then seeing which songs work um like you had a couple of things like waking up which didn't really do anything and bye bye foot vanished until it reappeared in providence and then other songs that were were there for good um and so it's, it's interesting to see how it all shakes out but those songs and the funk style definitely are, are legacies from from this tour. Yeah, that's a that's a great that's a great perspective. Um, I think I guess one thing I want to just we didn't really talk about this, but Sky, you mentioned in in our back and forth before this, just the Wormtown back of the worm sort of thing. I mean, is really just a kind of continuation of fish taking fans with them on these, you know inside jokes um where where does this where does this fit for you in like the pantheon of absurd ridiculous inside jokes um i don't think it was really too much of an inside joke as opposed to like the, the secret language where in 1990 it, it took um months for people to catch on to it um but it's something where they've had a tr- tradition of doing things like this where you'd have a, a joke or a gag one night and show up the next night. Like in uh, 1991 at the tracks, they said their name was Mrs. Piece of shit. So they completely, you know, changed the name of the band and then inserted a couple of times. And then the next night up at the Bayou in DC, they, they did it again. Um, and so, you know, you didn't have tapes showing up immediately and maybe not everyone was at the second show that was at the first show. And then if you wanted to go real inside baseball and they did the ninth cube this past year, uh, they're talking about someone who's having a kid and pineapple on pizza and all of a sudden Mrs. Pizza shit shows up. And so I think Fishman mentions it. And then Trey's like, Oh, I totally forgot about that. And so they're all joking and then they have to try and get back on track. So definitely inside baseball at that point. But like even <laughs> more recently in, in 2012, they had the, the tucking um, thing that showed up a couple of times in that summer uh, 2012 tour. And and while it wasn't a gag, the the fall 2019 tour, they had the, the plasma riff that kept showing up constantly throughout that tour um, in Providence and, and then certainly uh, in, in South Carolina. So it's like if you go to all the shows, you'll you'll catch the connection but otherwise if you only go to one show you might not realize that something else had happened beforehand um and especially in the 90s where you didn't have stuff at your fingertips you'd have to find out later on and then you're like oh all right 
Back of the Worm was done both nights in Amsterdam, Amsterdam, and then they did it again a couple of nights later in Italy. So I think for that, you had a lot of people that were from America doing multiple shows. But if someone randomly showed up at the show in Italy and they're like, "What? what's going on here? Um, <laughs> with, with Back of the Worm showing up in a hairy hood or, or sampling a jar, and they, there it is. And they, they'd have no idea what was going on. But people that were at the other shows would, would be in on it. So it's definitely something that has been going on through much of the band's career. Totally. It's like, uh, if you were there for the origin of it, then it's not an inside, then you're part of the inside joke. But if they just all of a sudden drop a, a worm on you, you'll have, you have no idea what's going on. And yet, uh, that's what we all love about the band is that, you know, they can all of a sudden take a left turn and some people will know what's going on. Some people don't, everyone eventually figures it out. I mean, you know, I- all the all fish fans kind of know this, but you know, in our conversation with John Paluska, I asked him if he ever considered, you know, whether he should ask, you know, persuade the band to be less goofy on stage, especially in these big moments, you know, playing MSG or play whatever. And it's like, you know, what he said, which is which is of course what we all know, is like that's just that's what you get, and that's part of what makes them special. And I just think it's cool that they they've consistently kind of like bucked the, the, you know, taking themselves too seriously. And I think that it's both, it like has done well for them. Well, even with these 97 shows, they were already playing in arenas in 95 and 96. And then they've, they've dialed back the intimacy and, and, and the joke and the theme. Um, you don't really see that too much these days, but I feel like it was done a lot more when they were playing the smaller venues. Man, this was this was this was fun. I, I hope that everyone listening and watching uh, feels like we did this justice because there's a lot of music here, and I think we all collectively probably spent you know 15 hours listening to listening to these shows to 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 deliver this to our to our friends. No question. I would say listen to the stash, July second, uh, ninety uh, seven. It's a uh, it really is outrageous. And then if you want to know about the worm, listen a little bit later in that set. I think in that set, um, yes. Uh, Wormtown. It's uh, sort of like uh, Steve Miller, right? It's um, got to get down to yeah, swing town. Swing town. Yeah. <laughs> it's a Steve Miller song that they say Wormtown. And of course, you know, the, the funny thing about that is that the beat, it's the, it's the drum beat. Ding, 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 ding. That's something that like drummers learn. It's like a, a famous drum beat. And so Fishman and Trey, of course, as drummers know, knew that be anyway. It's it, twisted, so but it's good. It's twisted and it's good. Yep, for sure. Um, I think that's it for us today. And and we want to say thank you to the famous Scott Marks. Uh, and and thanks to all you listeners and the Osiris team. Um, we have to mention our really good friends at Cash or Trade. Uh, the world's only social network where fans buy, sell, and trade tickets at face value. Uh, they're really good friends of Osiris. Check them out at cashortrade.org. Remember to review and subscribe wherever you listen or watch. And goodbye. And please remember to bring a few companions on the ride with you. <laughs> um, thanks again, Scott. And thank you, RJ. Yeah, Scott, we'll see you again this season. You're going to be back. All right. Thanks for having me. Osiris. This 
is the story of Whitney Houston. This is the story of Kurt Cobain. Of George Michael, of Otis Redding, of Amy Winehouse, of Michael Hutchins, Bob Marley. This is the story of Prince. It's a new podcast series. About how they died, why they died, and why we're still talking about them so long after. It's like nothing you've ever heard before. It's storytelling. But it's more than that, because rock stars... They tell us how we feel. They change our mood. They change the clothes we wear, the people we hang out with. The way we remember things. It's them who give us those ludicrous moments, the ones where you're... Jumping around, singing your heart out, feeling understood. And it's those moments we'll help you remember, the ones you're thinking about right now. That feeling. That feeling. It's coming soon from Crowd Network. Just search for Death of a Rockstar on your podcast app. And subscribe now. Hey, what's up? This is Blake Wyland. I'm the host of the Tone Mob podcast. It's a show where I interview guitar people about guitar stuff. We talk about their pedals, their amps, their accessories, their preferences, all that stuff, as well as a healthy dose of whatever comes up. Topics have ranged from aliens to addiction and anywhere in between. Oh yeah, and pizza. We're definitely going to be talking about pizza. So get the show wherever you're listening to this podcast at. Just search The Tone Mob in your search bar and it will pop right up. Come join us. We're having a lot of fun. Thanks for checking it out.